Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. phenomenon here at the last Sunday of August. It was true uh, in the early service and uh, so far true here, and that is uh, you seem very, very tired. <laughs> so uh, it's okay. You can be tired. It's in the summer. School started this week. And... So uh, maybe for a moment, uh, we'll just kind of start slow and you can stretch a little and, you know, um, think back to your high school, maybe even earlier middle school literature classes and what you learned about great stories and the elements of great stories. And somewhere you were taught that uh, in a great story, there is a lot of stuff that happens that leads up to a climactic moment. Remember that? Good. That's uh, that's a rousing, interactive experience we're having this morning. And so it it seems like uh, if you really read a great story that you are anticipating and you're trying to figure out what that climactic moment is going to look like, what, what that crisis and ultimate sort of resolution, because it sort of all happens together. You sort of this moment where the crisis comes and the confrontation comes and those pieces happen and, and you know, that all sort of twists in there. And then do you remember what the next part's called? Do you remember that from your schooling? There's a part now where the story starts to run out and it's, it's called the, it's a French word, it's called the, Denouement. Thank you. Very nice. The denouement. Yeah. See. So you do, you know this is all free. You, this is all free stuff. And so it becomes this really important thing. And when you think about great storytelling, something's going on in this climax. This climactic moment is a turning point in the story. The tension has been building, building. The elements have been coming together. And then in this moment, there's sort of this way in which everything comes together in a turning point. And then the denouement is this new moment, this new reality, the new normal. That's how we're going to live from now on as a result of all of these things. We started this little series, The Greatest Story, talking about Joseph Campbell and talking about uh, his great work, Hero's Journey. And, and these are his observations. Now, I'll read them to you very quickly. Uh, but, but his observations are not, he's not prescribing something. He's not saying, if you want to write a great story, here are the elements you need to include. Although his work is used in that way by writers. His observation was, I analyze great stories that humanity has held on to, the stories that we continue to tell, and these are the elements that are common in the great stories that attract human beings, that that cause human beings over generations to think these are great stories. Here they are. There is a need. There There is a challenge that is presented. The protagonist in the story chooses to accept the challenge. The protagonist gets outside and unexpected help in the story. The protagonist faces all kinds of challenges and overcomes and is changed and transformed and begins to live in a new normal. And so when we start to think about all of those little pieces and how they come together, Ralph Winter, who is a big fan of Joseph Campbell, part of our church and a great storyteller, Uh, he says every great story, just as a summation, is a story of redemption. Every great story is a story of redemption. And I think about this reality. I find that to be true. Whether it's a book I read or a movie I watch or a television show, the ones I like are the redemptive stories. The ones that I dislike are depressing. Anybody else? 
I don't understand investing in a story that doesn't go well. It made me cry a lot. That is not my goal. It's not, it's not what I consider to be a cathartic, heal, a cathartic, <laughs> cathartic healing moment. I, I, I just, that's not my goal. Well, it's reality. No, it's on TV. They made that up. It may mirror reality, but I have to live reality. I don't need to watch it for entertainment. I mean, I could choose something else, like a cartoon. So, so when we begin to, to enter into I, I just think this is fantastic. That the God of the universe, through the diverse skills of literally dozens and dozens of writers, gifted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through all kinds of passages of history, through multiple genres of literature is weaving together the master story of redemption. So much so that it is woven into our very DNA. That you and I resonate with these stories at such a deep level. Now, I, I of course, since I'm the pastor, have to say these things. But I would say, God wove into the very being of human beings the need for this story of redemption and a resonance with it that causes us to come alive when we see it and feel it. Sometimes I'll have people say to me, you know, I don't really understand the whole church thing because sometimes when I'm watching a movie, you know, I get moved emotionally just like I get moved emotionally sometimes in church. What's the difference? There is no difference. You've connected with some deep truth about the story of human redemption. Now, just because you saw some shallower version of it or some simpler version or some, you know, that, that moved you because of, you know, the pictures and the images and the actors and the act, whatever... Over here, we talk about it in terms of deep time and deep truth. Over there, we write scripts to pretend or to mimic or to mirror. But over here is the deep time. Over here is the deep truth. This is the well from which those stories are all... If your heart is moved, if you're touched, if the Kodak commercial makes you cry. <laughs> there's something about this redemptive story that God has woven into our very beings that's being touched and resonated. And that this story is woven together in that way. And so we celebrate. And so if you were to say, what is the, the climactic theological turning point in this story of God? I think most of us would say, obviously, it is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, you can't look at this story with all of its subplots, with all of the great, and we talked about the great stories of deliverance, the exodus of the Old Testament, the crucifixion, resurrection, the New Testament. These are not equal stories. This is a physical deliverance. This is a metaphysical deliverance. There are two very different things going on. And this is the climactic. This may have anticipated. And you get the beauty of how this ties together, don't you? The great story of the Exodus, the story of the Passover. It's at the celebration of the Passover that Jesus holds the cup. From now on, as the officers do this, you do it in remembrance of me. He's calling back. He's pulling this narrative forward. He's building on top of it. This is happening in a new way. That's what it was about back then, but now it's about this. This is the climactic. Everything has led to this moment of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So talk for a moment about the trilogy of the climax of the story. The trilogy is, first of all, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Who, who would have imagined that this could have possibly... From, if you stepped away from the biblical narrative and you talked about this historically and you just said, here's a criminal who was crucified, a very poor person, 
not well connected, not well tied in, not a person of great standing in the culture, who was executed by the Romans. Hundreds of people, thousands, tens of thousands of people died at the hands of the Romans. Tens of thousands of poor and disenfranchised people died for the ideology of Rome. To set an example, Jesus was one of those minis. The likelihood that this story of the death of this carpenter from Nazareth would so impact the world is so incredibly unlikely. And yet, this moment becomes something of an expression of the love of God for his creation. That, that this moment embodies in so many ways all of the things that God was attempting to teach us. John 13, 1 says this, It was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So that this theological moment, as John introduces sort of the whole passion experience here, They've arrived at the upper room. The disciples have refused to wash one another's feet. This is the opening of the chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. He, he uses this expression, and now Jesus immediately is going to wash their feet. But John uses this verse as an introduction to the passion. Having loved his own as, that was in the world, he now showed to them the full. We can hear these words resonating through the next few chapters as he unfolds the story of the passion. He's showing the full extent of his love. Why is this a significant story? Because it is God showing the full... God so loved the world that he sent his only son. This is the sacrifice that brings us peace. This is the reconciliation of the world to God. This moment, this cataclysmic moment in the story, everything that's been broken, everything that has been undone, every expression of Christ, every, every teaching about the nature of the Father, every teaching about grace and mercy and setting things right. This, this crusader has come, and again and again he has confronted the things. I don't know about you, but things make me nutty. Do things make you nutty? And I'm trying to imagine somebody who comes along and speaks the words that are deep in our hearts, woven into our DNA about justice and fairness and liberation and getting it right. Not swinging too far one way or the other. Walking that path of prowess into this place of truth, wholeness, health, goodness. And Jesus has done that. And you could use this introduction. He now showed to them the full extent of his love. He's going to be showing the full extent of his love. He's going to show the full extent of his love. Not just when he's washing feet. But when he prays in the garden, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. When he willingly goes, you would have no power at all except it's given to you from above. And so this climactic moment of the crucifixion is a turning point in the story. But it doesn't stand by itself. Of course, it's also the resurrection that stands in this climactic moment. That an author in a story can hold the climactic moment over this period of events is a gift. It's a skill. It's a, it's a powerful storytelling tool. God naturally begins to unfold the story now. We have this moment of the death of Christ, but, but this story is still building, and we're not done. It's still going. It's still moving forward. And now we have, we have what we call Easter Saturday. We have the silent Saturday. We have Good Friday 
the silent Saturday because we're anticipating then this coming moment, this coming of this cataclysmic shift of the resurrection. And this moment about Christ being raised, and the language is very specific in Scripture. It doesn't say Christ arose. I grew up singing that hymn. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. Christ arose, Christ arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. No, he didn't. Christ was raised. And you say, why does that matter? It matters theologically. (laughs) Because Christ didn't affirm himself. God affirmed the ministry of Christ. God said everything he said is true. This is God's eternal yes. Everything he said about the nature of the Father is true. Everything he taught you about grace is true. Everything he taught you about mercy is true. Everything he taught you about the shepherd's heart who seeks is true. It's true, it's true, it's true, it's true. Everything he lived, everything he said, everything he walked, everything he did, every act of compassion, every act of intervention, every act of justice, every act of fairness, every act of correcting what's wrong, this is the nature of God. And this is God's eternal yes, this moment of resurrected life. And so it becomes this moment of great, not, not only it is the final conquering of this last thing that holds us captive, death, this one thing we can't escape. The story is not that we deny death, it is that we walk through death, that death is a passage to something else. It's not the end. It has this deep significance to us. So we have this second piece of this climactic trilogy, the death and the resurrection, but there's a third piece. And by the way, when you think about this resurrection piece, this is astonishing because, you know, historians like to look at time and like say, well, you know, how do you really measure an event like the resurrection? You know, um, is it true? You know, you you can believe that Jesus Christ lived because we have good historical evidence of that. You can believe that he died in in a crucifixion. That's pretty easy to figure out, uh, historically speaking. But resurrection, that's a a different thing. So historians try to look for, you know, what we call external evidence, you know, what is not internal to the story. Well, here's a little piece of internal evidence, or external evidence. So for thousands of years, the Jews have worshipped on the seventh day of the week. God created six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And so for thousands of years, Saturday has been the day of worship. And historians look and they go, but for some reason, in the middle of the first century, a bunch of Jews started meeting on the first day of the week instead. Now, while that would not be all that astonishing, what is astonishing that over the next few decades, that movement spread across the world until in a very short order, people stopped worshiping on the seventh day of the week and they started to worship on the first day of the week. And when you stop and you say, well, why would that have happened? Well, something cataclysmic happened. The day that used to be celebrated as Sabbath now is celebrated as a sacred day in commemoration of something that moved them to change the behavior of thousands of years. They began to worship on the first day of the week in celebration of the sacred moment of the resurrection of Christ. So whatever else you believe about the history, you got to look and go, you know what? About mid-first century, history took a hard left turn and I don't know. I, I like it. I like the idea. What, what if we all said, we don't like Mondays? <laughs> Amen? So from now on, we're just going to have a day off on Monday. We're just going to celebrate. and we're, Let's start it here, and I think it will spread all over the world. There'll be no more Monday. Monday will become a Sunday. How far you think we'd get? I mean, if you go to your boss tomorrow and say, hey, boss, at our church, we've decided... <laughs> 
You know, go to the school system. Hey, folks, listen, we're going to need to have that Monday free. I'm saying it's a cataclysmic shift in human behavior. And maybe it's purely coincidental. But it centers around the moment of the resurrection of Jesus, that this behavior moved in a very natural way. Oh, he rose from the dead on the first day of the week. I will hold that day sacred in my heart. The third piece of the trilogy is the ascension. It happens later, and we don't necessarily include it in the climactic moment, but it is a part of the climactic moment. Something is happening. Something is shifting. Something is going on. It's leading us into now this denouement, this, this new normal, this new thing that's going to happen next. Luke is the one who really ushers us through this process. He's really speaking to us about what is going on in this climactic shift, and he walks us through it probably more particularly than anyone else. Luke writes for us two gospel narratives, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. That's volumes one and two. Uh, and so they are written both very distinctly for very distinctive reasons so that the Gospel of Luke uh, is concerned with, in very vivid ways, the birth, the life, and the teachings of Jesus, which include his death and his resurrection. The Acts of the Apostles, then, are what tell the story of what happens next. They are the denouement. They are the next part of the story. They are the new normal, and they indicate for us some things that are terribly important about the narrative. Listen to how it is written. And by the way, if you decide you really want to go back and read the last part of the Gospel of Luke, uh, you can... Uh, realize that he closes the gospel in much the same way as he opens the Acts of the Apostles. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven and after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with waters, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way, you have seen him go into heaven. I see four major shifts that are taking place that I believe Luke wants us to understand. Number one, there is a shift in ministry. There's a shift in ministry going on in this moment. So, so this third piece of the trilogy of the climactic moment is Jesus with his disciples, and he's saying to them, listen, things are going to be different from now on, and there's going to be a very fundamental shift in the ministry of this kingdom story. The ministry has centered around for all of these decades an anticipation of the coming of Messiah. You can go back to the very beginning. In fact, if you talked about what's going on in the garden, we have this moment in which the serpent is crushed. Remember that story? The heel is wounded, but the head is crushed. Remember that story? 
It's in there. And what we see in it is this great foreshadowing of the fact that, that, that the, the thing that finally crushes the head of the serpent, there's a wound, but it's just a little heel wound. It's no big deal. It's just a little heel wound. And we begin in the opening pages of creation anticipating the coming of the Messiah who will crush the serpent. Everybody with me? You don't have to believe the story, but you should tie it together. You should know what it says and the intricacy of the narrative. And so we've been anticipating... That the prophets, the judges, the law, everything is anticipating the coming of this moment, of this messianic being, the full embodiment, the, 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 the rescuer, the, the one who will come in the name of the Father. He will rebuild the kingdom. He will make the rights wrong. He will forgive his people. He will cleanse. He will make whole the healing, all of that stuff. All the servant songs woven through Isaiah's teachings and through the words of the prophets we're anticipating. And now it's happened. What do you do with the story now? And Jesus says, listen, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the ministry shifting, and Jesus is telling them and explaining it to them. Listen, you have been anticipating all of this around the Messianic time. We've had three decades now of Messianic reality. Three days in which we've been discovering, teaching, seeing the miracles, confirming the identity of who this Messianic person is. And now, the ministry is going to shift. No longer will it be about Christ, it'll be about Christ in you. That's a big deal. See, when we talk about this as a narrative of belonging, there's two things that are going to happen here. In this moment of ascension, two things are going to happen. He's going to look at that, that group of disciples and say, you belong to the kingdom. You belong to the kingdom. But that's just the first piece. The second piece is this. The kingdom belongs to you. Where's this story going to go? What is going to happen after this climactic moment? What will the new normal be? There'll be a shift of ministry from the person and embodiment and, and all that has been contained in this messianic project with Israel to Christ in you. He's articulating it in this moment. The ministry is going to go forward, not in the physical body of Christ, but in you. Now, the church will be, and notice the language that's going to now come out of Luke as he begins to talk about these first steps of this shift. From now on, you will be called the body of Christ. You will be the embodiment, the ministry that was anticipated through centuries into the messianic moment is now shifting from the messianic moment to the hands of the followers who will carry the story on. Number two, there's a kingdom shift. So the disciples have understood that the restoration of the kingdom is the restoration of Israel. They have understood that some literal... And so they've been asking these questions as they have walked around with Jesus. Where will we be in the new kingdom? What will my job be in the new kingdom? Do I get to sit at your right hand or at your left hand? How much power will I have? How much wealth will I have? How much honor will I have? And they've come to this moment to the death and resurrection. And now they're meeting together in these 40 days as we move our way towards the ascension. And they say to Jesus, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus must have been like. <laughs> I mean, if I was Jesus, I would have gone, okay, remember that conversation we had? About tear down this temple and in three days we'll build it again. Did you think I was talking about the temple temple? I'm talking about the temple temple. 
I mean, are you not getting the shift of kingdom here? It's not over there. It's over here. It's not this physical thing as much as it is. What I desire are people who worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm pulling this thing out of the physical limitations. There will be a physical presence of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God does not reside in the church. It resides in the heart of the people who gather together as the church. I had a uh, childhood friend who lived down the street from me, and uh, he attended the Church of Christ, and he and I would have 10-year-old theological conversations. (laughs) I learned from my friend that Sunday was the first day of the week. I didn't know that. In my mind, Monday was the first day of the week. And he informed me, no, 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 Saturday is the last day of the week. Sunday's the first day of the week. Huh. I didn't know that. I should probably pay attention in Sunday school. <laughs> and so we would t- talk about, you know, church, because we were church people. And he said, well, he asked me one day, what does the sign on your church say? Uh, I think it says, Woodland Park Church of the Nazarene. He said, ha. So you got a little attitude there or what? He said, that's not what our church sign says. I says, what does your church sign say? It says, the church of Christ meets here. Oh. Huh. That's different. (laughs) That's the kingdom shift. That sometimes we identify the church with being a place and a building and a name, but it isn't. The church in Greek, the ecclesia, the gathering of the called out ones. The kingdom resides in our hearts. The kingdom resides inside of each one of us. We are the church of Jesus Christ who gather weekly in a place so that we are equipped, encouraged, refocused to go be the body of Christ in a world that desperately needs redemption and hope. And he's saying to them, stop thinking about the old ways of the kingdom. I'm so glad we no longer think like that. (laughs) That's a great church. That one's not so good. Listen, the greatness of the kingdom has nothing to do with the building in which you reside. It has nothing to do with the name of the denomination on the front of the church. It has everything to do with the power of the kingdom alive in the hearts of the people who gather there. Amen? Amen. It's everything about that. And so this moment of ascension is the moment in which Jesus says, listen, the ministry is no longer over there. It's in here. And listen, the kingdom is no longer about that place. It's about how you live it. It's about what happens in you. The third shift. There's a shift of power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So that The disciples up to this moment have desired to be physically close to Jesus because being physically close to Jesus means you reside closely with the power. But Jesus is saying, listen, no longer is the power. And and it's interesting because as the disciples do their work, there's this proxy thing that's happening. So Jesus says, okay, I want you to go and I want you to pray over people and heal the sick and cast out the demons. And so they go and they try. By proxy, they take the power and they go, okay. And remember the story? They go and they pray over somebody and beats them up. And they all come back buddied and bruised. I mean, what a vivid story. They'll come back. 
you know. And the, and the person who needs the demon cast out comes back and says, can you help me? Your disciples are inept. <laughs> Have you read the story? I mean, it's literally your disciples are broken. Not sure what's wrong with them. And Jesus said, yes. And he cast out the demon, and then the disciples say, uh, hey, Jesus, why could we not cast out the demon? Oh, well, these kind only come out by prayer. You've got you to do some prep. And so they practiced by proxy, but now Jesus looks at them and says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This power that has resided in the presence of Christ will now reside in each one of them. The very power that has embodied Jesus will now inhabit his followers. You understand the cataclysmic shift that's happening in this moment? You will receive power. You don't have to believe this narrative, but you must understand this is how the story goes. That in this climactic moment, there is this massive shift in which Jesus is saying, the kingdom is being handed to you. It is yours to continue. How you continue is up to you. Whether you embody the truth of this ministry shift, that it really has nothing to do with where I show up with on Sunday. It has to do with what's going on in the depth of my being. That this kingdom is not about the group to which I belong. It is about something that has been transformed inside of me. That I walk around with the very presence and power of the Holy Spirit to, to whom I can pray and seek and ask. And so my question then becomes, what are you doing with the narrative? Because if I'm honest, I think I, I so often live not as if the new ministry of the kingdom is in my hands. I so often live like my story is the one that matters. And all I want God to do is help my story to work out better. But that is not how the story goes. The story is the very heart of Christ is continuing forward through the body of his believers. Do I wake up in the morning and go, the narrative is in my hands. How I act, how I think, how I speak, what I post on Facebook, the hand gestures I make when I drive. <laughs> These are kingdom things. And I've been given power. I don't know that I believe that. I, I certainly don't believe I act like that. I've always thought this is an amazing thing about being in California. And that is, our forefathers, ancestors, got here as pioneers. I wonder how they would feel about us. You understand what I'm saying? My very first Wednesday night here as pastor it was in July. It was a foggy, misty Wednesday night. My phone started ringing about 6 o'clock. Oh, Pastor, we can't come. We can't get out in the storm tonight. <laughs> storm? <laughs> storm? Your ancestors were pioneers. They came on a covered wagon. <laughs> they, they killed animals and cooked them. Can't come out in the storm. <laughs> We're like that, aren't we? We are so terribly fragile. I mean, how often do we wake up in the morning and, and in and of ourselves find a sense of resiliency in our own soul? 
of tenacity, of strength. I don't know about you. I complain a lot. You know what I find? I find that there there are people who are, you know, talk a lot. And generally they complain a lot. And then there are people who don't talk a lot. And they complain a lot too. They just don't tell you. I mean, have you ever thought, that person's really mature. And then you get to know them and go, they're really not, but they're quiet. So you don't know they're not mature. (laughs) Is it just me? Am I the only one that has observed this? (laughs) You know, I used to really like you, and then I got to know you, and now you talk to me. And now I don't like you. (laughs) You were better when you were quiet. How many of us confront the issues of our lives as if we are people to whom the kingdom power has been entrusted. And I know that can get super weird. But I'm just saying, most of us feel we are the victims of our lives and circumstances. And that is not kingdom language or thinking. Kingdom language and thinking is that God is supreme. And I'm an instrument in his hands. And my life and my time is an instrument in his hands. And I will pray the power and the peace of God. And I will pray this. On earth, your will be done as it is in heaven. And anything that comes against your will, I stand against it. In the name of Christ and by the power of his blood and by the gift of his Holy Spirit, I stand against anything that is not exactly what you want for me, not exactly what you want for my family, not exactly what you want for my health, not exactly what you want for my finances and my job. Yes, I know there are all kinds of people in the world who are doing things and wanting things that are contrary to what God wants. But what they intend for evil, God can use for good. That is what the story tells me. And this power now resides. You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. And at some point. Are we going to step into this. Narrative shift. And say. This story belongs to us. Now. It's in our hands. How we tell it. And how we live it. Will have a great deal to do. With how this story unfolds. The final shift. Is a mission shift and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth you will be the bearers of the narrative so go home and tell the story in Jerusalem go home tell it to your children tell it to your spouse tell it around the table tell it at home Jerusalem take the story The story doesn't mean anything in the other most parts of the world if it doesn't mean anything in Jerusalem. Somewhere we got the idea that I can be a total jerk, but I can go on a mission trip. (laughs) Listen, there is a sequence to these events. First in Jerusalem. Practice the kingdom life at home. (laughs) And, And then in your community, Judea. And then in Samaria where people don't think and look and act just like you. And then when you have begun to live out the narrative in these places, then take it to the rest of the world. But don't neglect Jerusalem because you've got to go to the uttermost parts of the world. Because Jerusalem needs you. It needs the narrative. It needs the gospel story to live, to breathe, to be alive, to be fully present. Somehow we got the idea that kingdom people just live by a set of rules. No, 
Jesus looks at the woman at the well and says, the kind of believers that God desires are those who worship him in spirit and in truth. They are the kind of believers who embody the very kingdom that it pours out of their words and it pours out of their actions and it pours out of the thoughts of their minds. They think of others. So vividly, Jesus says, whoever saves their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added. Isn't it an amazing narrative that says, after all of this, after all of this, there is this tra- if there has ever been a story that was written, that was created for a sequel, it's this one. <laughs> I mean, you can't read the story without going, you know what? They've set us up for the next part of the story. I mean, there's going to be another piece to the story coming. Look how it ends. <laughs> yeah. So this is what, now listen to this. Everybody still with me? All right, look at this. Closing the book. So in this mission shift now, he tells the story. And as he was speaking to them, he was caught up from their sight and hidden by a cloud. And they stood gazing into heaven. I don't know about you, but it seems like that's the part of the ascension we take with us. That's what we do. Going to church this week, what are you going to do? Stare into heaven. Going to sing some songs. I'm hoping to be emotionally moved. Hopefully the pastor will preach very short. (laughs) I was so blessed. It was a 15-minute sermon. (laughs) It's the best sermon he ever preached. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? That's not what it's about. It's about coming together to be equipped and going out to be the kingdom of God, to take responsibility for the narrative. This narrative is mine. This is my story. This is my song. I am an ambassador of reconciliation as though God himself is making his appeal through me. I can't say it's a great plan, but it is the one that the book tells me is true. And and just to reemphasize it, now Luke begins to tell the story of the first stumbling steps of the kingdom of God embodied in the church of Jesus Christ and what they do and what they say and how they figure it out and what it means and what it looks like. Oh, we got people who are hungry. What should we do? Maybe we should feed them. How are we going to do that? Well, we'll probably have to appoint some people to distribute the food. Maybe we have people showing up getting food that don't deserve. Have you read the book of Acts? It's very practical. It's the stumbling steps of this new kingdom coming to life, figuring it out, sharing together the passion of the kingdom of God alive on earth. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The one you have seen gone will come again in the same way. Now, I don't know how we read that. I think we read it like it's a sympathy card from Hallmark. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? He who went up in the cloud, he's going to come back again in a similar way. He'll be okay. I don't think that's the attitude with which those words were spoken. I, I think they're standing there and Jesus just said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the very ends of the earth. Oh, it floats off into heaven. And then they're all just standing there. He 
you know, I just think God's up there. Go, all right, send the messengers. Hey, men of Galilee, why, why are you standing up? Did you not hear a word he said? Just remember this. He's coming back the same way he went. Chop, chop. Get with it. You're on the clock here. You got to do the work while the sun shines. Let's get going. Amen. Amen. And how the church has deteriorated back into this moment where we gather after week after week to gaze into heaven. We gather week after week to be empowered and equipped to go do the work of the kingdom. The work of the kingdom does not happen together on a Sunday morning. The work of the kingdom happens tomorrow morning in classrooms and in schools and in workplaces and on the freeway and in the grocery store. The work of the kingdom is to change the trajectory of the world through the gospel message of redemption. And it has been entrusted. Not only do we belong to this kingdom, this story belongs to us. God, would you help us? Would you allow us, as we allow your words to melt into our hearts, we confess to you that what we so often want is to bring to you our story. To beg of you to make our story easier, or better, or different. So that we might be more comfortable, or happier, or less stressed, or less anxious. Would you remind us that you have very explicitly told us that whoever saves their life will lose it. But whoever loses their lives for your sake will find it. May we let go of so many of the things that preoccupy our hearts and our minds and our spirits, you have promised that you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on you. Lift our vision, our hearts, our minds. May we in ministry and in kingdom and in power and in mission live in the reality of the narrative not only to which we belong, but which sacredly belongs to us. Hear our words and our response. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, Amen. Amen. Will you stand as we respond? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.